Haiti was the first country in the Atlantic world to abolish slavery. How did it happen? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. This is Elizabeth, and on this episode, and our next, we will be discussing the Haitian Revolution. Between 1791 and 1804, an insurrection occurred on the French colony of Saint-Domingue, what would one day be called Haiti, that created a nation from the first successful slave uprising in the modern Atlantic world. This episode focuses on the insurrection led by the enslaved peoples that ultimately resulted in their abolition. This episode, therefore, is on 1791-93 to and covers the time the rebellion started to the end of slavery on Saint-Domingue. This period is often actually condensed to that sentence. The enslaved people rose up, and then within two years, they were free. Most stories of the revolution focus on the role of Toussaint Louverture, and there are many reasons for this, including that Louverture was the protagonist of one of the seminal works on the Haitian Revolution, the Black Jacobins and that has largely set the story for the past 80 years. What then is the story of Haiti? Well, that begins a long time ago. Saint-Domingue was not always a French colony. Prior to European colonization, the island was inhabited by the Taino people, who called it Quisquea, or Mother of All Lands, and Aiti, or Land of High Mountains. In 1492, it was, and I put this in quotation marks, it was, quote-unquote, discovered by Christopher Columbus, who renamed it Hispaniola. Eventually, though, the Spanish focused on the conquest of other areas in the Americas, and the island region became popular among pirates. After the end of the Nine Years' War in 1697, the island was technically divided between the Spanish side and the French side, but it wasn't for another 80 years, and another set of treaties, that a border between the Spanish Santo Domingo and the French Saint-Domingue finally led to an end of violence between the two regions. And, as a point of clarification, from here until 1804, when the name Haiti is officially adopted, I'm going to refer to the island on which the insurrection arose as Saint-Domingue. By the late 1700s, tensions were flaring between the white planters, the free people of color, and the enslaved persons. But, it was not until the French Revolution that this spark became explosive. To set the scene in 1789, the number of enslaved persons in Saint-Domingue outnumbered the free people six to one. With the main crops being coffee and sugar, the enslaved peoples of Saint-Domingue, like many Caribbean societies, had a high death rate due to the dangerous work required on the plantations and the inhumane treatment of the slave owners. The death rate of the enslaved exceeded that of their birth rate, leaving slave owners to constantly buy more enslaved Africans to work on their plantations. Saint-Domingue itself had a high level of social stratification. At the top of the social chain were the white colonists who ranged from plantation owners to shopkeepers to overseers. Even within this group, there was division, with the most powerful being the white planters. Next were the free persons of color. These people were often mixed race and referred to as mulattoes. They were of African and French ancestry, largely literate, and many male free persons of color had served in the army or as plantation overseers or managers. Some were also planters and even owned enslaved peoples themselves. Finally, the largest group on Haiti, as mentioned above, were the enslaved Africans or the enslaved peoples of African descent. 
There was even a hierarchical social system by which the enslaved people lived. At the top were commandeers, enslaved persons who acted as overseers or managers on the plantations for the slave owners. Then came the enslaved people known as Creoles. They had been born on Saint-Domingue and were considered easier to manage or to control by slave owners. Due to the high death rate among the enslaved, the majority of enslaved persons had been born in Africa and were often of either Congo or Igbo of descent, which for us means modern-day Nigeria. Many of the enslaved people who came from Africa were considered hard to manage, but they also had military experience as they had fought in wars in the Congos and they were sold into slavery after being captured. The Congo and Igbo people adhered to a belief system that rejected the concept of themselves as slaves. With all of this, the relationship between and among the groups in Haiti were tense, and violence never seemed far away. Before we start the revolution, though, I want to take a moment to reflect on how we quote-unquote know what we quote-unquote know about the Haitian Revolution. Jeremy Popkin, a leading scholar of Haitian history, and for whom you can find links to works at www.footnotinghistory, explains in his concise history of the Haitian Revolution that while the revolutionaries who led the American and French revolutions left copious written notes about what happened and what they thought had happened, many or even most of the enslaved insurgents on Haiti were illiterate. Instead, our accounts of the Haitian Revolution come from the perspective of the slave owners who were decidedly unhappy with the revolution, and were not hesitant to say so in their written communications. For these reasons, we must tread carefully and warily with many of the primary sources that serve as direct evidence. This does not mean that it is impossible to compile a history of the revolution, just that when you engage with the primary sources, and I really hope you do, or else I wouldn't have linked on the Footnoting History website to a set of primary sources organized by Popkin. But I want you to be aware of authorship and audience at every turn of phrase. Additionally, research into the Haitian Revolution was, for a long time, limited to C.L.R. James's 1938 work, The Black Jacobins, Toussaint Louverture, and the San Domingo Revolution. This work, which is to a large extent still considered a seminal work, stood as the main examination of the revolution for many decades. It viewed the revolution both through a Marxist lens, but also by focusing on the actions of Toussaint Louverture. More recent works, including the 2004 work Avengers of the New World by Laurent Dubois, provide a more comprehensive and dynamic analysis of the revolution. I heartily suggest if you have the chance, and while this list is in no way comprehensive, that you check out the further reading I keep mentioning at footnotinghistory.com especially Alyssa Goldstein Seppenwell's article, Beyond the Black Jacobins, as she provides citations and overviews of works examining the revolution through multiple categories, including gender, race, ethnicity, economics, politics, religion. In the last two decades, the research into the Haitian Revolution has truly picked up speed. Okay, but now we need to return to the late 1700s and the French Revolution. What? Yeah, we gotta go to the French Revolution. Before we can start with the Haitian Revolution, we need to understand how the French Revolution influenced what was to happen in their colony of Saint-Domingue. In 1789, here you go, are you ready? France had a revolution. I know, bet you didn't know that. Anyway, they did. And if you really aren't sure what I'm talking about, or if you'd like to know more, you can check out our series on revolutionary France. Now, in the French Revolution, slowly... The members of the third estate, i.e. not the aristocracy and not the clergy, were granted equality. But what then was this to mean for the colonies? Well, 
The next two years were largely, from the vantage of Saint-Domingue and other slave-holding French colonies, spent trying to figure this out. Eventually, they agreed that all white colonists should be granted political equality. However, the free men of color also wanted political and social equality, but the white colonists were against this. The National Assembly, the new legislature of the French government, was divided, especially as the white colonists kept arguing that if the free men of color were granted rights, they would totally use those rights to abolish slavery. The free men of color, some of whom traveled to and sat in the National Assembly, were, for the most part, largely emphatic that they were not interested in abolition of slavery. In fact, they argued, they were the white colonists' best bet for avoiding a slave insurrection. Scare tactics of a mass slave uprising were used on both sides, and the National Assembly kept trying to send the issue back to the colonies to figure it out. Some revolutionaries believed that the free men of color should be given political equality, but recognized that this would, in turn, support abolition. And the French Empire? Well, the economy was largely underpinned by the labor of enslaved people. In 1790, Auger, a free man of color, returned from France disappointed in the lack of action by the National Assembly. But he didn't return empty-handed. He returned armed. Over the next few months on Saint-Domingue, free men of color participated in armed rebellion. But then, Auger and others were caught, brutally tortured, executed, and their heads placed on pikes. Some members of the National Assembly were shocked, and a decision was reached. Free men of color who had been born to two free parents would be granted political rights. This wasn't a lot of people. As Dubois says in Avengers of the New World, quote, After two years, all attempts to end the slave trade and slavery in the National Assembly had failed. Had it not been for the revolution that soon erupted in Saint-Domingue, the French Revolution would probably have run its course, like the American Revolution, without destroying the massive violation of human rights at the heart of the nation's existence. End quote. The Haitian Revolution itself is rather disjointed and shouldn't be really seen as a movement that started with a concrete idea and then grew in number and support until they achieved independence in 1804. Instead, it's a series of events by which we, with hindsight, can now look to and say, ah, that's when it all started. But back then, it wasn't quite so obvious. There was, as mentioned, a complex hierarchy based on race and wealth. These groups each fought with each other in turn. Different regions, such as the North, the West, and the South, saw different groups gain power. In the remainder of this episode, then, I will try to explain what happened in these two years and how the enslaved peoples were eventually freed. We start, therefore, on August 14, 1791, on the Northern Plain, with a secret meeting, attended by many of the enslaved who held positions of responsibility on the plantations. They were drivers and managers, for instance, and they began to plan an uprising. It is this meeting that has entered into the legends of the founding of Haiti. It is known as Bois Camon, and there are reports that a voodoo ceremony was held and a stirring speech given, but none of these reports are direct, and without direct evidence, it's hard to say why this desire to hold a rebellion started there and then. But all summer, there were rumors that Louis XVI of France had promised freedom to all the enslaved peoples, but the white planners were refusing to give it. Or, that the decree of the new National Assembly had abolished slavery, but again, the white planters of Saint-Domingue refused to abide by it. The next night, a few of the enslaved peoples started the insurrection earlier than planned, and that rebellion was quickly squashed. 
The entire venture could have ended there, but the white planners didn't believe the confessions that the uprisings were part of a larger movement. On the 21st, another meeting was held. Now, on either August 14th or August 21st, there are conflicting dates. The leaders of this meeting, an enslaved man known as Bookman Duddy, allegedly gave a rousing speech that included the line, quote, Listen to the liberty which speaks in the hearts of all of us, end quote. Then, on August 22nd, the insurrection began for real as plantation after plantation was set on fire until the flames could be seen miles away. Like those at the meetings on August 14th and 21st, the leaders of the August 1791 insurrection were what we would consider high-ranking enslaved people who held positions of responsibility on their plantations. While many white planters were killed, others were saved as enslaved people helped them escape as they set the sugar and coffee plantations on fire. There are also reports, and again, these reports are from the white community, that enslaved women saved the lives of white women from the violence. At roughly the same time that the enslaved rose up in the northern plantations, the free men of color demanded their rights in western Saint-Domingue. The white planters, then, were fighting enslaved insurgents in one region, and politically and socially frustrated people of color in another. As white colonists pushed back, the fighting became intense. The black soldiers had few guns and suffered great casualties. The battle tactics of the enslaved who had recently arrived from Africa were used to some success, but within a few short months it looked bleak for the enslaved insurgents. Many of the initial leaders of the movement had been killed in battle or, as in the case of one of the insurrectionists, executed by their own side for their brutal behavior. By the end of 1791, the enslaved insurgents, now under the leadership of Georges Abiasu and Jean-Francois Papillon, tried to reach an agreement with the white colonists. Biasu and Papillon promised the white leaders that as long as they and some other members of the insurrection were granted freedom, they would send all of the other enslaved peoples back to the plantations for work. A common theme in the Haitian Revolution is that the leaders of the insurrections, the leaders of the enslaved, and the free men of color constantly seem to try to assure the white rulers and governments that only by giving in to them could the white government ensure the obedience of the other enslaved peoples. But the white planners rejected these offers. The leaders of the slave insurrections began to set up more permanent headquarters, which one white colonist said looked like a royal palace. The majority of former enslaved peoples divided land from the former plantations and created subsistence farms. At this moment, we see another division between the leaders of the insurrection and the members of it. The new leaders wanted the continuation of the formerly enslaved peoples growing cash crops like sugar and coffee because they needed to pay for their new lifestyles, but also military equipment. But the enslaved peoples, who now held some freedom in their hands, were not interested in returning to that regimented and hard life. To help keep the black soldiers equipped, therefore, Yasu and Jean-Francois sold black women and children to the Spanish as slaves. At the same time, violence heated up in other parts of the island, and there were conflicting reactions in France as the legislature seemed unable to determine if they supported abolition, or if they should grant full rights to the freemen of color, or are they, were they only supposed to be supporting the white colonists? For much of 1792, therefore, matters on Saint-Domingue were in a holding pattern between the white planters, the freemen of color, and the enslaved insurgents. Enslaved peoples who hadn't joined the insurrection were conscripted by the whites and free men of color to serve as their soldiers. One story from this period would have lasting ramifications. 
In an effort to take Port-au-Prince, one of Saint-Domingue's largest cities, free men of color hired enslaved people and offered to pay them for their service. These men became known as the Swiss, because Swiss men were also known to serve as soldiers for pay. Ultimately, the free men of color defeated the white community of Port-au-Prince, but the terms of the surrender included that the enslaved peoples who fought, the Swiss, were to be sent away as white planters felt that an enslaved person who had borne arms against them could not be trusted. The Swiss were sent away, but the captain of the vessel carrying them couldn't find a new home and brought them back where many were killed by angry white people. How, then, were enslaved peoples to trust those who they fought for? And in the larger scheme of things, who was each group fighting for? Those leading the slave uprising, interestingly enough, pledged their support to the embattled Louis XVI. The new government in France had not granted equal rights to black men, nor had it abolished slavery in their colonies, and so it was to the king that Biassou and Jean-Francois turned, to add insult to injury for the enslaved insurgents. In April 1792, Louis XVI and the National Assembly agreed to a new law, but only granted full civil and political rights to free men of color. The governor of Saint-Domingue worked to implement the new law and to put down the insurrection of enslaved people, but both were unsuccessful. Eventually, he was sent back to France and was executed by guillotine in the spring of 1793. To help restore order to Saint-Domingue, the French government then sent two men referred to as the Second Civil Commission, Pulverel and Santonax. Each of these men held radical views and had published articles in favor of abolition. But, on their arrival, they pledged that they would keep the slave system as is. Between the time Pauvrel and Saint-Denax had sailed from France and landed in Saint-Domingue, Louis XVI was overthrown and his constitutional monarchy abolished. And while Pauvrel and Saint-Denax were supposed to be focusing on repressing the insurrection of enslaved persons, they found that it was the angry white community that required attention as the white men attempted to overthrow this new inclusive government. The refusal of the white community to accept the free men of color as political and social equals led the new revolutionary government of Saint-Domingue to join forces with the free men of color. This coalition, the Second Civil Commission and the free men of color, chased Biasu and Jean-Francois and the other enslaved insurgents into the mountains of Spain. By January 1793, the insurrectionists found themselves enslaved again after 18 months of freedom. But then international matters once again changed the tide of revolution as Britain and Spain declared war on France. While it was nerve-wracking enough for the Second Civil Commission to have Spanish and British colonies so close, there was even more problems. White planters from Saint-Domingue went to London and agreed to help the British defeat the French as long as slavery was preserved. Polverel and Santonax had to do something before the British and Spanish arrived, but their orders were to preserve slavery. Finally, they determined that they could reissue the Code Noir, a century-old French decree by Louis XIV, which had restricted the movement of black people and others, but also provided enslaved persons with some protection from slave owners. What they failed to foresee was the anger from the white planters, who felt that yet again the government was interfering with their rights. Then, a number of events happened that forced Pulverel and Santonax's hands. First, the Spanish were in talks with Jean-Francois and Biassou, the leaders of the insurrection. The Spanish promised to not only help the enslaved, but also to abolish slavery. Next, a new governor was sent from France, 
one who owned a plantation with enslaved peoples on Saint-Domingue. This new governor, Galbeau, was seen by white planters and white sailors as their salvation. Even though Pulverel and Santonax believed that they had convinced Galbeau that he needed to return to France, white sailors convinced the governor otherwise, and together the governor and the sailors attacked the commissioners on June 20, 1793, in the city of Le Cap. For those keeping track, the original insurrection by enslaved persons had begun 22 months earlier. It was at this point that Santonax, Pulverel, and the free men of color felt they had no choice. They told enslaved men that if they fought with them, they would earn their freedom. Within two days, 2,000 men under the leadership of two black commanders named Pero and Micaiah joined the commissioners and free men of color, and together they marched to Le Cap. The white people of Le Cap were terrified, and there are reports that the governor threw himself into the harbor in the hopes of getting on a boat. Within days, the city had been burned to the ground, and 3,000 people were dead. The commissioners kept their word, and the black soldiers were granted their freedom. That wasn't enough. Only the men who had fought were free. What of their wives and their children and the others? John Francois and Biasu, they still sided with the Spanish who had promised freedom for the enslaved. On July 11, 1793, the commissioners therefore extended emancipation to the wives and children of the black men who had fought in the cup, but again, it still wasn't enough. Many, many people were still enslaved on Saint-Domingue. Additionally, and something that the commissioners saw as the bigger problem, was that now none of the free black people of the northern province were agreeing to return to plantations and work. Finally, on August 29, 1793, Santanax declared slavery on Saint-Domingue abolished. All men, women, and children were free. But freedom was given with strings attached, and my next episode on the Haitian Revolution we will explore what emancipation meant and the influence of Toussaint Louverture. Educators, if you use podcasts in your classroom or as assignments, or if you're interested in doing so, check out our new Teach tab at www.footnotinghistory.com. It includes a link to a breakdown of our episodes by region and time period and provides helpful keywords as well as sample assignments. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can learn more about becoming one at our website. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or on Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And, of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes. Footnotes.